You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Husky schneider This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, December 27th, 2021. Over the next two weeks, we will take a look back at the stories we covered in the year 2021. In today's episode, we will review local environmental stories from the last year. You will hear Sophie Hall report on Duke Energy's investment with solar. Brianna Devon provides a history of PCB contamination in Bloomington, and Nathaniel Weinzapfel, who covers how Senate Bill 389 will impact Indiana's wetlands. All that and more in Local Environmental Stories, 2021 in Review, Part 1. In June 2021, WFHB correspondent Sophie Hall reported on Duke Energy's $180 million investment into solar energy. Experts weighed in on the transition to solar energy in light of the Duke investment. We turn to Sophie Hall for that report. Betty Lynch starts her day like anyone else. She flips on the lights, makes coffee, and watches the news. Some days, she cuts the grass or hops in her car and drives to work. But Lynch doesn't have to stop at the gas station on her way or worry about her energy bill later because her electric car and home appliances are all powered by the solar panels on the roof of her home in Lawrence, Indiana. I feel like I'm doing my part to not put a bunch of carbon and and ugly stuff in the air. A transition to solar and renewable energy in Indiana is on the horizon. A subsidiary of the Duke Energy Corporation, Duke Energy Renewables, has announced plans for the $180 million Hoosier Jack solar farm in Vigo and Sullivan counties. According to Tyler Kuhn, Duke Energy Renewables' business development manager, the farm will exist on 1,500 acres of reclaimed surface coal mines and have the capacity to power 35,000 residences and businesses in Vigo and Sullivan counties. He claims that the project is their most advanced yet, but will not result in an increase in Hoosier's energy bills. Well, there's a lot of of ways that a project like this, just by being in that area, is going to benefit the local community. He says the areas surrounding the farm could see a 20-fold increase in property tax revenue, which would fund local schools and fire departments. The farm would also create 200 jobs for the two-year construction period, and long-term opportunities for contractors in the area. Taking the nation as a whole, there's more job growth in renewable than there are in coal, oil, and gas. Peter Schubert, director for the Richard G. Luger Center for Renewable Energy, says he has seen a quiet revolution of solar energy in Indiana over the past decade, particularly in the substantial fraction of Indianapolis's energy generation that has moved to solar. According to Schubert, much of the resistance to renewables comes from disinformation. So it's, it's, there are some people or groups who are completely antithetical to renewable energy and will actively uh, thwart those efforts. They will undermine those efforts 
They will delay and disrupt those efforts, and they will use disinformation to convince people who may not have an awareness of both sides of an issue that wind turbines are evil and solar panels are taking jobs away. Still, data like the Environmental Resilience Institute's Hoosier Life Survey shows that solar energy is popular among the majority of Hoosiers, regardless of political affiliation. So it's not going to happen naturally on its own, uh, but we think the conditions are, are certainly there uh, for the state of Indiana to embrace pro-solar policies. Zach Schalk, Indiana Program Director for Solar United Neighbors, says his organization believes that conditions are right in Indiana for the state to embrace green energy and pro-solar policies. Solar United Neighbors is a nonprofit organization that promotes and facilitates customer-owned solar, which allows people to power their homes with rooftop solar panels. That helps to stimulate good-paying local jobs. Uh, that helps improve air and water quality and therefore uh, community health. And then it also helps to build wealth um, in communities that, uh, that have uh, been negatively impacted by our legacy of uh, dirty fossil fuel energy generation. Shulk says solar is the cheapest option at the utility scale, and that low cost, combined with changing customer preferences, is causing many utility companies to begin looking into renewable energy. Shulk also says that despite the cost of solar panels decreasing 90% in the past decade, rooftop solar is still a big investment. That is why he believes Indiana needs proactive policies and programs like community-owned solar, which would allow people to buy into a shared solar power grid. Um, that's all not going to happen naturally. We need proactive policies that are going to get us there. Uh, but if we do it right, um, everybody can benefit from the transformation to a clean, just, and equitable energy system. As far as what exactly the future of energy will look like in Indiana, these experts are divided. Construction on the Hoosier Jack solar farm is planned for 2023, with energy generation beginning in 2024, according to the Tribune Star. Kuhn says that solar and wind energy will be needed to fill the void created by coal plants retiring in the coming decade. He sees a large wave of solar companies coming to Indiana in the next five years. Schubert is currently studying the use of abandoned coal mines for grid-scale energy storage, which he says could meet Indiana's manufacturing demands when combined with renewable energy. Schalk envisions an Indiana powered by rooftop and community-owned solar, but is unsure of what the future will bring. These questions and problems feel really big. You know, the energy system is big and scary. The you know, Duke, the monopoly utility company is big and scary. Uh, and it's really easy for people to kind of just feel small and insignificant in the face of those uh, big, scary, immovable obstacles. Um, but I think what folks should take away from it is that, you know, you're not alone. There are you know, groups like Solar United Neighbors or Citizens Action Coalition or Hoosier Environmental Council, um, you know, Sierra Club, all kinds of organizations that are already bringing people together who care about these issues and helping to organize them and, and give you a sense of your own power um, and help you figure these things out, help you answer uh, the questions that you want to ask. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing to take away is, you know, for folks who are interested in these questions to, to get involved in, with, with one of those groups, you know, whatever it is, uh, whatever 
is available locally to you, you know, whether it's Solar United Neighbors, if you're really interested just in solar, Pollution Environmental Council, if you're, you're passionate about conservation and the environment more generally, Citizens Action Coalition, if you're, you know, uh, really focused on consumer protection and, and, and other, you know, advocacy issues in, in that regard, um, you know, find, find a community of people who are already focusing on these questions and, and join them and, uh, you know, be, be a part of the solution. Betty Lynch doesn't start her day like everyone else because her life runs on solar. She is one of many Hoosiers looking to the future of energy, wondering what it might look like. So while her morning isn't typical now, she hopes it will be soon. In August of this year, WFHB correspondent Brianna Devon reported on the history of PCB contamination in Bloomington and how public perception varies on the EPA Superfund cleanup. Devon speaks with journalist and professor Steve Higgs and community activist Linda Green. We turn to Devon for more. Early this summer, the EPA moved to declassify three PCB contamination Superfund sites in the surrounding Bloomington area. The decommission of these cleanup sites from the national priority list draws a decades-long environmental movement to a close. For those who were there, to witness the contamination and the resulting fights for public health and environmental safety, perceptions of whether the EPA's cleanup was successful vary. Yet, there seems to be a consensus that this story of community activists rallying in the wake of environmental catastrophe has earned Bloomington a spot in the history books. I've been a journalist here for 40 years. This is unquestionably the biggest, uh, most consequential issue that this community has ever faced. It became a nationally known fight here. And I'm sure it inspired people to keep fighting in their own communities. People came to Bloomington, Indiana to learn about PCBs. Journalist and professor Stephen Higgs has been following the story of PCP contamination in southern Indiana every step of the way, starting all the way back with the initial contamination. Well, Westinghouse Electric Corporation used to have a manufacturing plant out on Curry Pike on the west side of Bloomington, where they made electrical capacitors, which are the boxes that sit on top of uh, electricity poles. Okay, Those capacitors were filled with oils that contain PCBs. The, the, the reason PCBs are in there is because PCBs are almost indestructible. PCBs, you need to heat them to 2000 degrees in order to cause them to break down. So they were perfect for electricity coming into a box where it has to be stored, which of course is very hot. So they used PCBs, uh, electrical companies use PCBs in those boxes that Westinghouse manufactured. And Westinghouse manufactured those from the 50s up until the 70s when we discovered how toxic and dangerous they actually were. So what happened was, while they were manufacturing them out there, of course, things go wrong, right? So when they would have defective capacitors, when something would go wrong, they would just take those capacitors and throw them away, put them, in, send them, put them on trucks and take them to various landfills in and around Bloomington that became Superfund sites. The Lemon Lane landfill, which was the city dump, was a huge one. Neal's landfill on west, uh, out on West Highway 48 was a big one. 
Uh, but there were six of those places scattered around Bloomington where all defective capacitors actually went to. So for so 20 years of capacitors that built up, I actually just read today that when they excavated Lemon Lane landfill, they found one place where there was 15 feet high of old electrical capacitors that were just piled up and dumped in the same place there. In terms of contamination from one source, Westinghouse, this is the biggest in the entire United States. In the wake of the mass contamination of such a toxic substance, public officials at all levels of government began the urgent search for a cleanup solution. The EPA came out with a proposal to address the contamination along with another common local environmental issue. Monroe County had two major environmental problems. One was the landfill, which was overflowing. We didn't know what we were going to do with our trash, and we had the PCD problem. Well, our city administration, uh, the mayor's office, along with the state of Indiana, the EPA, well, their solution was to build an incinerator, an experimental incinerator, something that has never been built before, had never been done anywhere in the country, that was going to burn the PCBs at 2,000 degrees, and they were going to fuel it with trash. The idea to use solid waste as fuel to burn PCPs in an incinerator may sound innovative in theory, but in practice, issues quickly begin to arise. One problem being that trash would likely be an inefficient resource. Common solid wastes are made up of materials that would likely not be able to heat the PCBs to the intense temperature necessary for their destruction. Another issue presented by the incinerator solution had community members banding together in order to halt the cleanup process. But what they were going to be doing was taking those PCBs, which are highly toxic, almost indestructible uh, materials, and when they destroyed them, they would basically condense that into dioxins and purines. Dioxins being the active agent in Agent Orange, essentially because of the potential health risk that was going to come from a PCB incinerator downwind from the city of Bloomington and Indiana University campus, people in, in this community rose up uh, and fought it tooth and nail because we felt it was going to take a terrible problem and make it even worse. Community member Linda Green, a member of People Against the Incinerator, was one such activist. Green explains the difficult road those who opposed the incinerator faced. When the incinerator was first proposed, the city, the county, the state, and the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, and the EPA all okayed the incinerator. So those of us who were fighting the incinerator had a huge battle on our, on our hands with all the public officials against us. It was a very difficult and exhausting process because we were up against everybody. We just went to every city meeting, every county meeting. We just made a fuss constantly. We did a huge amount of research. In fact, people who had no scientific background were plunged into the science of incineration.
Ultimately, their civic engagement and environmental activism was successful, and the incinerator plan was discarded. Stephen Higgs explains that though many public officials were sure the incinerator was a safe solution, public outrage at the prospect of further toxic pollution won out. They were still adamant that they were going to build that incinerator. It was not a bad deal. They never backed down from, from the fact that it was a good idea. But politically, it just became untenable. Because when you burn 650,000 cubic yards of contaminated materials, you get 600,000 cubic yards of, of, of contaminated ash. And that had to go someplace. After the hard-fought battle against the incinerator, the EPA still had to come up with a solution to the PCP problem. A local consent decree laid out the plan to capture and remove PCPs from the southern Indiana environment and take the toxic materials elsewhere for treatment. And now, after decades of the capture and removal process, the EPA's move to declassify the Superfund sites signals a successful cleanup. However, some community members are still skeptical. With health concerns at the core of toxic contamination and years of fighting for a safe cleanup, Linda Green points out that people may be wary of believing the EPA's claims. I think there's a tremendous amount of corruption at all levels. I think the official story is making it look like it's all taken care of. I think there's still a problem here. However, Thomas Alcamo, the EPA's remedial project manager for the Bloomington sites, reassures that the cleanup process has been rigorous and that there will be consistent routine checkups of the sites in coming years, as is the standard practice in the declassification process. Stephen Higgs concurs with this opinion that the EPA has done all that can be done. I mean, my sense is as long as they are actually capturing all of the PCBs coming out from under Lemon Lane, I mean, I don't think there's anything else that we could do with Lemon Lane or any of the other places. It's probably been as effective as, as it could be. You know, I mean, they dug up the worst of it, took it away, but it's just so omnipresent, you know, and so indestructible. PCBs have been found in snowmelt on, on Mount Kilimanjaro. Every human being, you have PCBs in your body. I have PCBs in my body. There's not a person on the planet, I don't believe, who doesn't have PCBs and honestly, a couple hundred other toxic chemicals. Specific contamination sites are likely no longer a hazard here in Bloomington, thanks to the EPA Superfund cleanup process and the relentless work of community members. But the now widespread reach of PCPs alludes to a greater problem on the horizon. Environmental threats, contamination-based or otherwise, are likely to escalate as climate change looms and pollution continues to rampage. The story of PCBs in the Bloomington area creates a movement to emulate, one that highlights the importance of community action and protection at the local level. This story of civil engagement in the face of environmental disaster may act as a guide for the next generation of activists. On August 19, 2021, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzaffel spoke with Christopher Kraft, 
Professor of Rural Land Policy at Indiana University, and John Lawrence, Executive Director of Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve, to learn more about the effects Senate Bill 389 will have on Indiana and its wildlife. The opposition was strong. Over 110 organizations and individuals signed and delivered a letter to the governor's office requesting a veto. The signers represented all parts of Indiana and multiple forms of environmental organizations. However, despite the unprecedented amount of opposition, on April 29th, Governor Eric Holcomb signed Senate Bill 389, which reduces the amount of wetlands in the state of Indiana. Meanwhile, in a quiet part of Monroe County, lies the peaceful wetlands at Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve. Unaffected by the changes in the Senate bill, the wetlands found here will continue to fulfill its environmental purpose for generations. However, Executive Director John Lawrence is a strong supporter of all wetlands and emphasizes the importance that wetlands have for the state of Indiana. Wetlands are just incredibly important uh, reservoirs of biodiversity, and they also provide really important uh, ecosystem functions. Flood control is a big one. They, they act like, uh, kind of like a big sponge. Uh, you know, soak, hold, soaks up, they soak up water, hold back water, help, they help negate flooding. Uh, they also reduce uh, pollution uh, in, in waterways by collecting uh, uh, pollutants, uh, which can, you know, include uh, excess nutrients. Wetlands help uh, retain those nutrients locally so they don't go downstream. Uh, they're also just really important habitat for plants and wildlife. The example are Bean Blossom Bombs Nature Preserve. We have uh, recorded over a dozen... Species of, that are endangered or of, of conservation concern there, including the Indiana bat, which is uh, uh, federally endangered, uh, Kirtland snake, which is a cute little snake uh, that uses crawfish burrows, uh, it's state endangered, and, and, and several other things. So, and a lot of these uh, plants and animals uh, rely on the wetland habitat, they're not found anywhere else. If the Bean Blossom Bottoms Nature Preserve is protected, then what exactly will the controversial bill the governor signed do? The bill deals with the wetlands of Indiana that are protected by state laws. Of the wetlands in Indiana, 80 to 90 percent are not protected by the federal government, but have been protected at the state level. Under state protection, there are three classes of wetlands. The bill removes Class 1 wetlands from state protection and also reduces the amount of Class 2 wetlands while leaving Class Three wetlands intact. The differences between the three classes were explained to me by Christopher Kraft, a professor of rural land policy at Indiana University, Bloomington. So again, this is back to the state of Indiana, that isolated wetlands bill. They say it's a Class One, the lowest quality if there's been you know, hydrologic alteration, like it's been ditched or drained or filled, or it has more than 50% invasive species. 
So if it meets one or both of those criteria, they say it's a class one. And under the old bill, a lot of these wetlands were protected. Um, if they were larger than a half an acre, they would be protected. You know, Senate Bill 389 has said, we're doing away with class one. We're, we're not going to, these are not wetlands under this bill. And if you have class one isolated wetlands on your property, then you can do what you want with them. Well, let's go to class three wetlands. They're the highest quality. These are ones that, um, and I think under the existing 389 bill, these aren't being affected. Um, they're, they were protected before, and they're protected now. They, they're high quality, or they have high species richness, or they have rare endangered species. There aren't that many of those. You know, there's a lot more class one wetlands. And then class two are kind of in the middle. They're not, you know, severely altered or dominated by invasive species, but they're not these super high quality sites. And Senate Bill 389 affected class two wetlands by saying that, um, it used to be that I think if it was more than a quarter acre in size, it would be protected. And I think under Senate Bill 389, it said, nah, if it's got to be bigger. If it's more than three-eighths of an, an acre, we'll protect it. But if it's less than that, we're not going to, it's not going to be protected. According to the National Water Summary Wetlands Resources Report, wetlands cover over 813,000 acres of Indiana, and 80% of the state's remaining wetlands fall under the categories of Class 1 and Class 2 and are now susceptible to being drained. With this information in mind and knowing the importance of wetlands, Professor Kraft explained who benefits from the passing of this bill and who benefits from the change to the permits needed to remove wetlands. Well, I think um, for people who advocate growth and um, that sort of economic growth, I think that this is an argument that they would like because it's, you know, some of this land is off the table to development, or if you do want to develop it, you're going to have to go through the permitting process, and that can be pretty lengthy and pretty rigorous. I've worked with some landowners who've kind of gotten caught up in, in that. Um, you know, that's people, I think, who stand to benefit. You know, on the other hand, Indiana's not known for having you know, the abundant natural resources some states like, say, Michigan have. And so when you take some of these protections away, um, you take away some of the limited natural resources that are still present in the state. For many farmers and land developers, the permitting process for removing wetlands is quite difficult. And the bill relaxes this process and makes it easier for Class 1 and some Class 2 wetlands to be removed. While this allows development to be easier at the moment, it does not account for the effects that the lack of wetlands could have on the future. Opponents of the bill, including the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, have argued that the bill leaves Indiana ill-prepared to face the floods that will follow the increases in rainfall expected in future years, as well as limit essential earth processes such as water filtration, water storage, and groundwater replenishment. Despite the passing of this bill, there's still great work being done to protect the wetlands of Indiana and restore old wetlands throughout the state. Mr. Lawrence described what effect the bill will have on the goals of the Bean Blossom Nature Reserve and its organizing body, the Sycamore Land Trust. It certainly just means that uh, efforts by uh, conservation groups like Sycamore, the Nature Conservancy, our, our other local land trusts, uh, throughout the state to 
do what we can to uh, acquire wetlands and areas that can be restored to wetlands and then put in the large commitment of, of time and effort to, number one, do any restoration work that's needed, and then, of course, to uh, monitor, maintain, and, and protect that area in perpetuity. That work just becomes all the more important when there are less efforts on the regulatory side to, to protect wetlands. Lawrence says for those interested in helping conservation groups who are stepping up to the plate to protect Indiana wetlands, the Bean Blossom Bonhams Nature Preserve always welcomes volunteers. There are a lot of ways you can support our work. Uh, most basic, of course, is be a donor. We have memberships starting at uh, $40 a year. Uh, it all goes into uh, making our work possible of... Uh, not only acquiring more land, but also protecting and and uh, maintaining the land that is already in our care. We also have volunteer events. Um, best way people can get involved with that is uh, sign up for our e-newsletter. Uh, you can go to our website, sycamorelandtrust.org. For WFHB. I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems and encourages independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolar.com.